This podcast is brought to you by GuestLogix, the leading global provider of ancillary-focused merchandising, payment, and business intelligence technology to the airline industry. To learn how GuestLogix can elevate your ancillary revenue potential, visit www.guestlogix.com. Seth, do you remember back in the 1980s, the commercials for Old Milwaukee Beer? Oh, you mean the ones that ended with the line, it just doesn't get any better than this. Exactly. These are now classic ads in America. The ads would all feature a group of guys doing outdoorsy things like fly fishing, airboating, and even catching Alaskan king crab. Anyway, with U.S. Airlines now reporting fantastic earnings, I can't get those commercials out of my head. Well, at least a twisted version of them. I keep picturing Richard Anderson, Doug Parker, and Jeff Smizek sitting around a campfire saying, Hey guys, it doesn't get any better than this. So that's my first question today. Does it get any better than this? I also want to talk about Turkish Airlines' aggressive growth, Emirates' struggles, Norwegian's profits, and of course Delta's earnings. We'll discuss them all on this week's edition of the Airline Weekly Lounge, starting right now. Welcome to The Lounge, where we discuss the week that was in the rough-and-tumble airline business. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President here at Airline Weekly, and I'm with our managing partner, Seth Kaplan, who's one of our esteemed airline experts. Esteemed, huh? Well, I'll take it. Good to be here. Thanks, Jason. Okay, let's start with my question at the outset. Delta reported last week, and the results were spectacular. And Southwest, American and United, will report this week, and the results will also likely be spectacular. So for U.S. carriers, does it get any better than this? That's the question everyone is asking, Jason. It's a good one because, uh, I mean, on one hand, they've been moving in one direction. That's been up and up. So you think, well, why wouldn't they keep doing that? On the other hand, there are some reasons to think that these last few quarters have been kind of an exception. Uh, The reason, Jason, for that is that fuel prices, of course, have been dropping. And that's perhaps going to continue going forward. But but that doesn't mean that airline revenues will stay where they are. In fact, lower fuel prices could be a reason why revenues continue declining as they've begun doing in just the past few months. Basically, Jason, the way it works is that fuel prices eventually end up affecting everything else aside from just the fuel costs themselves, which change very quickly. But there's always some lag time. So if we think historically, a decade ago, fuel prices were going up and up. But of course, airlines weren't able to adjust quickly enough. And that's why most of the U.S. airlines ended up in bankruptcy. Well, now it's kind of been the opposite situation where fuel prices dropped very dramatically and the airlines were basically able to pocket the difference between what fuel used to cost and what it costs now because the revenue environment and really everything else in the U.S. remained very much the same as what it had been before the fuel prices started going down. But, well, what often happens is that eventually these things all catch up with each other. Airlines are, in fact, growing again now. They had been, of course, not growing very rapidly in recent years to try to keep fares up because of the higher fuel prices. Well, 
Yeah, that's been changing. And these lower fuel prices, uh, encouraging airlines to grow and growth. I mean, in the end, Jason, supply and demand economics tends to mean lower fares. And that's what we're beginning to see. And when I look into the schedules later this year and into early next year, well, that growth is accelerating and that generally will mean lower airfares. Uh, you know, for most of history, airlines grew more quickly than the U.S. economy, which is why airfares in real terms adjusted for inflation did nothing but go down and down. The past few years been the opposite. Airlines growing more slowly than the U.S. economy. That was propping airfares up. Uh, but now getting back into the old situation where airlines, again, look like they'll be growing more quickly in the economy. That means probably airfares continuing to drop. The question, Jason, is we have this race between lower fuel prices. That's the good part. Lower fares, that's the bad part. Which of them will decline more quickly? Whatever the answer to that, uh, almost certain that this very unusual situation of the past few quarters where you have these very low fuel prices, but rather high fares, unlikely to continue exactly as it's been. And profits will probably come under at least some pressure, which is not to say uh, that we're going to go back to the bad old days of a decade ago. Airlines in the U.S. doing just fine, uh, maybe just perhaps a bit less fine in the coming quarters than they've done in the recent ones. And looking specifically at Delta, they're seeing reduced ticket revenues internationally and even, and, and this was a bit of a surprise to me, weakening domestic yields. Now, of course, that's all being eclipsed by falling fuel prices, but, but fuel prices won't fall forever. Does Delta have another lever to throw to keep profits up? It's a good question, Jason. You know, uh, the, their pilots also recently voted no uh, to what seemed like a, a rather good contract going forward. Uh, Delta was hoping that, that that new pilot contract would give the airline more flexibility to get some of the different kinds of airplanes to help uh, facilitate profitable growth. Delta does sort of have one automatic lever, and that's the fact that those falling fuel prices that we just spoke about, well, Delta didn't really get the full benefit of those falling fuel prices in the past couple of quarters. That's because Delta was more heavily hedged for fuel than most other airlines. Now, lots of hedges are a good thing when fuel is going up in price because they can protect an airline against those increases. But in Delta's case, it basically basically promised to pay more for fuel than that fuel ended up costing. And so whereas an airline like American got the full benefit of the falling fuel prices because American is completely unhedged and some of the other airlines somewhere in between, not as heavily hedged as Delta, even if they were not unhedged like American. Well, Delta now going forward is going to see its fuel prices continue declining even if the spot price of fuel, the price airlines are paying today at the pump, doesn't decline that much. And that, that's simply because those fuel hedges are wearing off. So Delta, uh, fortunate actually for the next few quarters that its fuel prices will continue looking better no matter what if fuel doesn't begin going up again in price, which of course would change the whole equation again. That's probably the best lever it has right now, although uh, certainly an airline that's done a lot right in recent years and continuing to make changes to its network and, and uh, to its marketing strategy and so forth in ways that, that should continue to help the airline do well. So it could actually get better for Delta. Yeah, Delta, all things being equal, is actually the airline with sort of the, the best automatic opportunity for improvement here in the next couple quarters, simply because if fuel prices don't rise, Delta is the one more than almost any other that'll see its 
adjusted fuel prices, you might say, continue falling. Whereas American got lots of benefit in the past couple of quarters. But if fuel prices don't move from here, uh, American won't be paying less next quarter than it did this quarter. All right. Let me stay with Delta one more moment. Delta likes partnerships. Uh, they've got JVs with Air France, KLM and Virgin and a partnership with Goal. All of them seem to be working. And then last week, we learned that Delta is considering an equity position in Skymark, the bankrupt Japanese carrier. If it happens, if that goes through, do you expect that to work as well? Yeah, you have to give Delta the benefit of the doubt with these partnerships because they've executed very well thus far. Uh, with Skymark, they see an opportunity to, to really fix one of their big problems in the world. Broadly speaking, Asia is a problem for Delta. That's something that's developed over the past few years. You know, when Delta merged with Northwest, uh, part of what we all thought it was getting in Northwest was strength in Asia. Northwest, after all, used to call itself Northwest Orient, an airline very much focused in that part of the world that had a very successful Tokyo hub, a hub at Tokyo Narita Airport. Now, what happened over the past few years is that the Japanese government started letting more long-haul flights operate from Haneda Airport, the other airport in Tokyo, which is the one that travelers prefer because it's closer to most of the places in Tokyo where they actually go. Well, United with its partner, All Nippon, and American with its partner, Japan Airlines, have been working together to really set up some, some networks where they've been able to get a, a lot of benefits without United and American having to undertake a lot of the cost of operating flights within Asia. American especially doesn't really do anything within Asia. United does a lot less than Delta. Delta still has this very expensive hub at Narita. It's rather clearly not making money for Delta, but because it doesn't have a partner, basically when the music stopped, there wasn't a chair for Delta with those other two big Japanese airlines taken, Delta had to do this all its own. Well, now it sees Skymark as a way to fix that. You know, Delta has tried to get a joint venture with Korean Air, its big partner in Asia. Korean Air basically hasn't wanted that. It's tried to set up a situation in Seattle with Alaska Airlines, where uh, Delta would essentially have an Asian hub there. And Alaska Airlines hasn't really been interested in doing what Delta wants. Um, but now with Skymark in Japan, it might finally be able to, oh, you might say, have the milk for free without buying the cow, the cow being that expensive hub in Tokyo. Let Skymark operate the flights within Asia and connect with them with Delta flights uh, going from the U.S. to Tokyo. So it's a promising opportunity, and we'll have to watch this play out because it could finally be at least somewhat of a solution to Delta's problems in that region. Looking at American and United reporting later this week, what are you most curious to hear about from those two? Yeah, they both have uh, some interesting challenges. United uh, of the big three U.S. airlines, American, Delta, and United, has broadly been the most challenged airline in recent years, challenged financially and challenged operationally. You know, just a few weeks ago, we saw that big ground stop because of its computer issues and not mutually exclusive, the operational and the financial uh, issues. You know, United, uh, an airline that doesn't have the 
best reputation for reliability right now. And in fact, uh, you know, Delta has bragged in recent years of being able to take some business from its less reliable competitors. Delta, the airline that's, uh, you know, uh, more of its flights are on time and it loses fewer bags and those sorts of things. United in recent years kind of on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, American, an airline that, of course, uh, is, is still finishing the integration between the two pre-merger airlines, American and U.S. Airways, an airline that's done very well, made a lot of progress so far, uh, but rather suddenly with some important challenges in its most important market of all, that's Dallas-Fort Worth. Southwest over at Dallas Love Field, the other uh, airport in the region, the one uh, conveniently located to downtown Dallas, now finally allowed to fly nonstop from there to anywhere in the United States. That's a big deal because for almost all of Southwest history, it couldn't do that. Sure enough, it's taking advantage of that opportunity, offering all kinds of routes, competing now very much more directly against American than it ever did. Virgin America has set up shop there at Dallas Love Field as well. And Spirit, the ultra-low-cost airline that's really not afraid of anybody, competing with a lot of new flights at Dallas-Fort Worth itself. And so American, under a lot of sudden revenue pressure. And so uh, you know, we'll see, again, that, that race between the falling fuel prices, that's the good part. The falling fares, that's the bad part from an airline perspective, certainly not from a consumer perspective. Uh, we'll have to see. Who wins that race? And uh, United American will definitely have a lot of commentary about the the fair environment. And that's what consumers as well as analysts are are, are looking at right now is, is the, the recent drop in airfares just temporary or will it, as appears to be the case, kind of continue into the fall and winter. And meanwhile, across the Atlantic, this surprised me. Norwegian reported a second quarter profit. It was due to a number of things going right, things like ancillary revenues and fuel prices, but it wasn't because of low-cost long haul. Not at all because of that, Jason. In fact, it was despite that. You know, in the history of the world, uh, airlines have tried dozens, if not hundreds of times to make this model work, and it never seems to. I'm talking about, you know, from Freddie Laker and People Express through to the present, Scoot and all these other low-cost long-haul operations that never really seem to make money. And sure enough, Norwegian is trying it, not just trying, but really going all in you know, with expensive Boeing 787 Dreamliners. And uh, yeah, rather clearly, uh, the, the, the modest profit that they made during the second quarter did not come from that part of the airline. Now, management, Jason, uh, expressed some optimism, you know, seemed to indicate that that things are at least stabilizing at that operation. And they said it will uh, actually contribute to profits going forward. That won't be easy because, you know, it would be one thing if they had stopped growing that operation, because as as markets mature, typically they do get better, but they're still growing it rather rapidly. And so, you know, the burden of proof is very much on them to show how this model that has really never worked around the world in any kind of meaningful, sustained way at an airline that itself has generally not been a wildly profitable airline uh, is somehow going to work this time. Uh, but uh, they are expressing confidence. In, and, hey, there's a first time for everything. Uh, certainly within Europe, they've been doing better. And, and that's kind of the shame for them is that they – they had turned the corner just as the low-cost long-haul operation was starting, and then that kind of set them back a bit. But uh, we'll see. Maybe they can indeed uh, make it work. On to Turkey. Turkish Airlines said last week it will soon start serving Darbin in South Africa. 
That didn't surprise me. But what caught my eye is the growth pace that Turkish has been on. They've grown capacity 10% in the first half of this year. That's fast for an established airline with over 250 planes. Is Turkish being too aggressive? An important question, not just for Turkish, really, but for, for global aviation, because let's face it, they compete uh, against airlines everywhere. And if they are oversupplying the market for capacity, well, then the, the, the low fares that that would result in would would impact all airlines. Uh, you know, throughout history, uh, there have been a lot of examples of airlines saying, you know, we have more opportunities than airplanes. And it's one of those things that kind of always seems to be true until it isn't, right? Uh, even Southwest, for example, up until several years ago was saying that, and then it stopped growing. And we've seen that uh, with lots of airlines, including rather successful airlines. Uh, Turkish, you know, uh, a rather successful airline, certainly uh, over, over the past decade, but one that is growing very rapidly at a time when demand for air travel in a lot of parts of the world is not growing so rapidly. And it's a little bit difficult to uh, imagine how it continue can continue rather uh, growing at this pace without having some uh, significant impact on its yields. Now, the big wild card always when having almost any discussion in the airline industry is you know, what's going to happen with fuel prices. Now, if fuel prices, uh, you know, plummet even further from where they are right now, well, then anything's possible because then, you know, you could have lower fares because of more supply and, and yet that could be okay because the cost could be so much lower. Uh, but if not, uh, you know, at some point here, it, it's certainly possible to imagine Turkish kind of hitting up against the wall where they're having a hard time growing profitably and they are kind of pushing into more and more marginal markets. And uh, again, going back to that whole, you know, more opportunities than airlines comment, uh, you know, the, the corollary to that is that almost by definition, uh, new routes are usually less profitable than existing routes because number one this goes back to the uh, discussion a few moments ago you know they're they're uh, with respect to norwegian uh you know new routes are not mature they take time to develop and number two if you really thought that the route that you're going to start tomorrow uh is going to be as profitable as the one you're flying today well, why didn't you start that one first? And so you, you do tend to see that that at some point an airline can run into problems with, you know, how do I continue growing so quickly, so profitably? And we'll see if Turkish has reached that point. Staying in that region, let's talk about Emirates, which was this week's cover story. We made the case that Emirates is struggling a bit because of threats from, well, everywhere, Forex pressures, yield challenges, competitive pressures. And it seems to me what we're witnessing is this. Emirates is the quintessential global carrier who is now finding out the globe can be a tough place. So do you think the U.S. carriers, after hearing all that, will start feeling sorry for them and drop their claims of unfair subsidies? Yeah, cue the violin music, right? I'm glad you caught that was a tongue-in-cheek question. Yeah, you know... Uh Probably not. Uh, although, no question, the, the way they've sort of characterized Emirates as as this uh, this behemoth might be a little bit harder of an image to maintain if Emirates does indeed begin struggling somewhat. Uh, you know, much like Turkish, what we said, sort of to find uh, profitable ways to grow. The reality, though, is that. Uh, U.S. carriers, if they're afraid of a strong Emirates, should probably be afraid of a weak one even more. Uh, you know, 
when you get an airline that is desperate, uh, that's when it can start doing things that hurt competitors sometimes in a more meaningful way than than uh, the ways a strong airline competes. You know, I I uh, remember seven, several years back, famously, you know, Airtran used to complain about what it thought was an irrational Delta in Atlanta. And, and when Delta was turning itself around, analysts would ask Airtran if it was afraid of that. And Airtran said, no, you know, we're happy to compete against a more rational Delta. Uh, and, and so, you know, if in fact Emirates really begins to struggle, for example, with where else to grow from its golf hub, its hub in Dubai. And if those struggles result in, for example, more flights like the ones it's now operating between Milan and the U.S., if, for example, it starts uh, flights from other points in Europe to the U.S., well, that would be a much bigger problem for the U.S. airlines than most of the service that Emirates is offering so far. Because after all, for all the new service that Emirates and its peers in the Arabian Gulf and Turkish Airlines as well have offered to the U.S., you know, those flights don't compete against most of the business that U.S. airlines do. Uh, you know, it comes down to simple geography. I, I mean, uh, you know, Dubai, Doha, Abu Dhabi, and, and even Istanbul to a lesser degree are a long way from the U.S. And most of the passengers that book flights on U.S. airlines are, are traveling from the U.S. or to the U.S., uh, to or from somewhere that's not as far away. And a connection in those places generally isn't uh, a, a realistic option for those people. Uh, you know, if you're flying from uh, New York to Paris, for example, you're not going to connect in Dubai along the way. But if those airlines do start operating more of those fifth freedom flights, as they're called, flights from uh, countries outside their home countries and the U.S., and if those places are closer to the U.S., where in fact they are impacting more of uh, the, the traffic volumes from U.S. carriers, that could start to have a more meaningful impact. And in fact, although they haven't exactly said it like this, uh, there, there's good reason to believe that it's those kinds of flights that scare the U.S. carriers the most. You know, they would concede uh, even some of the traffic to India and important places, but faraway places that are impacted by those Gulf carriers. Uh, they're very scared about uh, the idea of more European flights to the U.S. by the Gulf carriers. And those flights uh, become more likely if those carriers struggle with what else to do from their home hubs. Okay, last question. To what degree will the headwinds that Emirates is facing also affect the other Gulf carriers as well as Turkish? Are they all going to experience some of those struggles? Yes, some of them at, at least. Uh, Emirates in some ways a proxy for those other airlines uh, and generally more successful than they are, at least by all appearances. You know, Emirates, uh, although not the most transparent airline in the world in terms of the information it releases about its finances, is considerably more transparent than Qatar Airways and, and Etihad, for example. And uh, those airlines are, are likely struggling at least as much as Emirates. Emirates, the biggest airline line in that region. And it has a, a hub, Dubai, that has a local population that's considerably larger than the other ones. And that's important because airlines tend to earn outsized profits from people who live locally and who are willing to pay premiums for nonstop flights. When, when you're relying more on connecting traffic, 
well, let's lower yield traffic because connecting passengers have lots of options to co connect uh, over different hubs. It's those nonstop passengers who say, you know, I want that nonstop from Dubai to New York or Paris or what have you, and I'm willing to pay more for it uh, where you can earn outsized profits. And so when Emirates earns a lot of money, uh, Qatar and Etihad are perhaps able to earn a little bit of money. When Emirates is earning less money, as is the case right now, we can imagine that those airlines are, are struggling even more. And we see Turkish Airlines, as we discussed a moment ago, certainly showing uh, signs uh, of, of struggling as well with where to grow profitably. So, yeah, it does sort of feel like something has to give in that region. You know, the question is, you know, ha have those airlines peaked? Are their best days behind them? Or is just this sort of some sort of a momentary struggle and uh, they'll kind of regain their footing and, and become rather profitable? And with that, we are out of time. Seth, I thank you for being here. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next Wednesday, every Wednesday, in fact, with another lively discussion in the Airline Weekly Lounge. <laughs>